1: From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable.
0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody is having a great day. It's hump day. And I tell you what, man, in Iowa, we had kind of a warm spell go through. It melted a lot of the snow that was on the ground and uh, it really got me itching to go shed hunting man of all the things that I like to do you know that revolve around the whitetail deer I'm going to have to say that shed hunting ranks up there man just under actually hunting I absolutely love Walking around aimlessly through the timber, doing some scouting. You know, while I'm looking for sheds, looking at old sign, looking for new tree stand locations, looking for sheds. You know what I mean? And and to me, that's something I can do with my wife. Uh, she actually enjoys doing it. And uh, last year, we we had one of the best possible years of shed hunting. That man. know not not the best day but it was cool because we went out and between two of us we found nine sheds and six of those were parts of uh, matching set so three matching sets and I know she's excited to uh, go look for some sheds this spring as well somewhere around March And uh, I don't know, man, I'm just, uh, I just love doing it, you know, it's a great time to get together with some friends, and uh, it's low pressure, I mean, there's nothing serious about it other than walking, and uh, it's a good time of year to get outside, and I don't know, man, I just absolutely love it, and uh, really looking forward to that. Now, today... Today, we are going to be talking with a gentleman named Scott Emrick. He is a Michigan guy. He lives north of Detroit, and he hunts on some of the most highly pressured public property, public hunting property, probably in the United States. Uh, He says it's an hour north of Detroit. It is the first stop for people who leave the city. And uh, he's, you know, he tells us stories about running into ten guys a day uh, on on the same pieces of property as him, and uh, that kind of molded him to leave the gun hunting aspect of it alone uh, and try bow hunting. With that, it you know it also forced him to be a better bow hunter. So basically, this is another. Uh, tr- you know, another example of, uh, of a person going through the trials and tribulations of hunting public grant, uh, public land, high pressured public land and coming out on top, you know, being a consistent, uh, you know, consistently killing deer, good deer, you know, a good representation, uh, for this area. And, uh, I, I tell you what, I love hearing stories like this where it's kind of against all the odds. You know, the odds are not in your favor. You know, I can sit there and watch a television show and I can see a guy who who put in a lot of work uh, planting food plots and cutting down trees and staying out of his 3,000 acres, you know, that he solely hunts or he or she solely hunts and uh, nobody else can touch it except them. And then they can grow their deer and they can wait for them over their food plots to come out and and shoot them. These guys don't do that. These guys go find them. Uh, They deal with the pressure. They deal with all the the shit. I mean, you guys, if you're a public land hunter, you know of all the crazy shit that can go down while you're, you know, from everything from the moment you pull into the parking lot or wherever you park to the moment you leave the the stand – it's a whole different animal, even a whole different animal than what I am used to, and I share a piece of property with uh, other hunters as well. So I tell you what, it is, uh, it's uh, its is—it's—it's good to hear guys like this become successful, and as you'll hear in this story, be successful over a short period of time of hunting. So uh, this is going to be another good podcast. Hopefully you guys enjoy it now. Exodus trail cameras, right? They just c- came out. Man, I can barely talk tonight, guys. I think uh, the stress and tiredness of being a dad, a father of three, is starting to catch up with me this week. And it's only like it's Tuesday night, which is crazy. But I'm not, I'm a man. I'm not going to sit here and bitch and complain. I'm going to tighten my bootstraps. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to buck up. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about Exodus trail cameras, man. I tell you what, the good thing about Exodus trail cameras is that, like, right now, man, I think I have like, oh, I don't know, seven of their trail cameras, maybe. And uh, I can tell you right now that I have had zero problems with any of their cameras. Um, I did have a couple user error things, and uh, I called them up and they said, uh, hey, You got to do this, and I was like, "That's cool. I'm an idiot." (laughs) And problem solved. Now, one big thing a lot of you guys have mentioned was like, "Oh man, you know, some of their trail cameras are too expensive. They're direct to consumer, so you have to remember that you're getting more quality in a lower price because the margin, you know, they're making less margin. Uh, There's no, there's no margin for the middleman." Blah, 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 blah. So they heard you guys loud and clear. And now they came out with the Exodus Trek trail camera, right? And it is, I think it retails for like $145. So now they have purchased a lower end or they they have manufactured a lower end trail camera for guys who, you know, don't want to spend $200, right? They don't want to spend $220. Now you're going to be spending $100 and 45 bucks I think is their what they're retailing it for on exodusoutdoorgear.com. So if you want to find out a little bit more about the Exodus Trek, it's their more affordable camera, go to exodusoutdoorgear.com and you can enter the discount code 9fingers and receive, check this out, $20 off of that purchase. Now, that brings it down to like 125 bucks for a really good trail camera. I can't wait to get mine in so I can start throwing them in the woods and testing them out. So go to exodusoutdoorgear.com uh, and please go out and support that company because they support me. I have now officially talked too much. Let's get into today's Hunter Profile BS Public Land podcast with Michigan native Scott Emmerich. Alright, on the phone with me today, Mr. Scott Emmerich. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm good, Dan. How are you? You know, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I could sit here and tell you that my son spilled his dinner all over the table because him and my daughter were fighting over a pair of scissors that were left out on the table and then you know I had to clean it up because my wife's breastfeeding but nobody wants to hear about that right we're we're here right right we're here today to talk about whitetails and hunting and the break from reality so to speak so before we get into this hunter profile podcast why don't you talk to us a little bit about where you live and what do you do for a living
1: uh, I live in Michigan. a uh, small town, Commerce Township, about an hour outside of Detroit. Um, for work, I actually own a brewery, so it consumes a ton of my time. What? Uh, we just had our yeah, we just had our two-year anniversary on Saturday, so that was, uh, it was a pretty big day for us.
0: Okay, dude, that is so cool. Um, <laughs> you have okay. Shout out your. Em- Uh, Shout out your uh, brewery, man. Tell us uh, where it's located uh, so that when people are north of Detroit now, or they know where to stop.
1: Yeah, so it's called Kickstand Brewing Company. So we're right down there in Commerce Township. Um, Like I said, we've been there for two years. Um, It's been pretty awesome for us. It's an adventure every day. Um, But we're producing um, everything you're looking for, you know, from an amber to a porter to an IPA. Uh, keeping up with the trends, we actually just launched distribution, um, so we'll be statewide in cans. So anybody listening to this podcast in Grand Rapids or Mackinac City, et cetera,
0: uh, might start seeing our beer popping up. Dude, that's so cool. Like, I don't know. I, I just think it's cool when you can go and start something from scratch. I mean, is that what you did? Did you start something from scratch or did you like buy an old brewery or how does one- no, yeah, we- How does one go about, you know what, I'm going to start a brewery?
1: Well, the idea kind of came a long time ago. Uh, We were home brewing and my business partner and I were kind of like, what are we going to do? You know, we're in school. Nothing's really too exciting. We're like, you know, I don't really want to just jump into the business world and, you know, work nine to five. So, Uh, We were like, let's open a brewery. Everybody was like, yeah, yeah, you guys are a little crazy. But um, (laughs) it was the time to do it. You know, they were popping up. People were into those ideas. You could find investors. You could find people who wanted to be a part of a brewery. So we set out, um, brewed a lot of homebrew. That was pretty terrible. And then we kind of just worked our way up into more professional systems as we went. And it took us about four years after getting out of college, and uh, we finally made it. So we, we got a place that was vacant for 12 years. Um, it's in a strip mall, so it's nothing. Once you get inside, you'll be a little more impressed, but we renovated the whole thing. Um, we put a brewery in the back, um, sizable enough for distribution, and we've got a restaurant up front um, that's got 165 seats. So we see a lot of traffic Friday, Saturdays. Um, we're in an area where not too many restaurants, so we see a lot of people in for dinner, and it's it's fun. It's just a blast. I mean, you're creating you know food to pair with beer that everybody can enjoy, and it's just I mean
0: it's a blast. Man, that's so cool. Now, I've had some. I, what you're called a micro brewery or a, like a craft brewery? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Micro. So I've had some micro brews that were very delicious, and on the other hand, I've had some micro brews that (laughs) tastes like my dog's butt so right so
1: there's there's a few of them out there
0: so how does one get to the point where people start i mean is it all trial and error like you you brew something and then you drink it and you're like okay this we we may have something here or you brew something this tastes like shit we're gonna toss it
1: well, we have yet to toss anything. Um, you kind of learn your lessons when you're home brewing. Yeah. You figure out what works, what doesn't work. Uh, when you go into brew a batch, as you start getting a little better, and even on a professional system, you got to do your research. Right. You got to know exactly what you're putting in. I mean, some different styles of beers, you know, they're calling for like 10% of a different malt, or you know, you're going to see this style of flavor in it. So you really build your beers to a style, just like you would a, a recipe at home in the kitchen. Right. You build out that recipe, you're looking for an end flavor, um so when you brew that you're you're striving for that so you you kind of set the bar where you want to go, but of course, you can develop off flavors, and some of those flavors um can make the consumer definitely turn in the in a different direction right,
0: man that's a very interesting stuff, man um so curious how long does it take for you to be big enough to where you can start distributing outside of the uh uh Michigan area. You know, that's a great question. I'm not
1: sure there's some sort of time frame on it. I don't know if we'll we haven't decided that we want to go that direction yet. Um you have to be quite scalable. You have to have a serious serious operation. The operation we have now wouldn't sustain it. So we would have to go out and, you know, get a new building and get a whole massive production system in there and and want that. Um, I don't know if we're just gonna stay our little content place in Commerce Township, maybe open a few smaller uh tasting pubs from there and kind of branch out and just really hit some markets in Michigan. Um that's that's yet to be determined. I guess we'll see where this year takes us, you know, our first year in distribution. So then wow. you know, we'll go from there.
0: Cool man. Well I really hope it turns out for you and you're the you turn into the next Budweiser. <laughs> thanks <laughs> that, that'd be huge that'd be almost too big huh if we were if we were pumping
1: out the amount of beer that Budweiser does I would definitely be pretty pleased but uh, <laughs> they're, they're massive <laughs> they're massive I mean they're just huge
0: cool but man we're,
1: you know craft breweries and microbreweries are converting a lot of people over to right. to our beer you know from the
0: from the normal Budweiser type style of beer absolutely alright man well so you're a You're a brewery owner. Uh, That's cool. Yes. You're also a whitetail hunter, right? I am. I am. So where did you grow up in Michigan?
1: Same town. Same town. I've been here
0: my whole life. Okay. So, you know, like every person I talk to on this podcast, you know, when I say Michigan, the first thing that comes to people's heads is small bucks and a lot of hunters is that consistent with the area that you hunt and you've been hunting your whole life
1: extremely consistent yeah okay
0: all right so before we kind of get into all that stuff i want to talk to you about michigan as a state and i don't think i've ever asked this question um to people you know michigan has not only a higher population of people but a lot of hunters as well, so do you think that Michigan is like highly traditional state when it comes to hunting and the gun seasons and and you know based around families going out and and trying to get it done? you know just you know what I mean like having deer camp and right. everybody's a big group? see like it's like me, I never grew up in that environment right i i've always been a solo hunter Uh, i've never really hunted with anybody else i go out do my own thing Uh, i've never been a part of like uh, a quote-unquote hunting camp what was your youth like uh in michigan
1: well i'm very similar to that um i was a solo hunter for a while i just hooked up with a couple buddies here that are just about as serious um to whitetails that i am also um But I got into hunting in college. A roommate introduced me to hunting. I decided, hey, you know, uh, I'd like to go hunting. And he's like, cool, go get a gun. Uh, We'll get you a ground blind and we'll put you in the woods. I mean, it's typically how a Michigan hunter starts. They go out on the opening day of gun. They're probably at someone's family farm or deer camp, like you said deer camp's just huge in Michigan. Yeah. Um, I was on a state piece of ground and I went out there and popped up my pop up and sat there with my shotgun and watched probably 10 people walk past me <laughs> and then another 10 people and then another 10 after that. Um, so immediately I went back to him and I was just like, this is crazy. You got to teach me how to bow hunt. He yeah. was a huge bow hunter. Um, um, he really wasn't into gun hunting. So he was like, all right, let's do it. Right. So that next year, um, you know, we went, um, and we got me a bow and we got it in and went to the shop and got it all tuned up and whatnot and that's when it really began for me because it was more of a chase than gotcha um just going hunting so uh, what, what about as a kid around.
0: i mean as, as a kid did were you into hunting at all i mean any of your family or parents hunt
1: nothing okay. um my grandpa's probably shot five rabbits in his life and that's it right dad doesn't hunt grandpa doesn't hunt other grandpa does not nobody in the family um land's not a thing to them fishing sure um recreational of course but um just yeah no nothing nobody in the family really uh pushed me in any sort of direction to
0: hunt okay so what was it while you were in college you know what was it about a scenario where you were at in your life that you were like you know what i want to try to deer hunt, what was that trigger? For I think you? it,
1: I think it was just watching my buddy leave. um You know, he would tear out of there in his Wrangler, and he'd go out and hunt and come back, and he would just have awesome stories. And I'm like, dang, this sounds pretty awesome. I want to do this. You know, I'm kind of just sitting back, doing whatever, hanging with whoever's else is in the house and whatnot. So it sparked me to just want to be outdoors more, rather than just yeah, I'm going to go for a hike and then I'll be back, or you know, I'm going to go walk down some sidewalk in some woods or whatever. But really getting out there and just enjoying being in the woods, enjoying the quiet and the peace. And and then when you start bringing animals into it and you're chasing particular ones, uh, it's a challenge. Right. And I like a challenge. So I think that's kind of what got me hooked was, I'm like going to go out there in Michigan and just see a whole bunch of deer and take one and bring it back home. And uh, you got some venison. You got to work for it, right? <laughs> you got to know a little bit about what you're doing. Um, and you got to avoid a lot of other hunters. Um,
0: and that's, it's fun. Right. So like when I was in college, I had hunted before, you know, I think I started hunting when I was like 14, started with a, a bow and arrow. And then I uh, did some shotgun hunting in between there. And then I went to, got into high school, hardly hunted at all, got into college, hardly hunted at all. Um, and then after college is when I really got into it, but how serious would you say you took that first year of hunting, uh, you know, when it was time to, to get out and go,
1: um, extremely, okay. I went out and. I wish, you know, at that time I was hoping my buddy had a little more time to show me what to do, but I was kind of winging it. Um, he told me, you know, go buy this stand. It's cheap if it gets stolen, which it's probably going to. You'll be all right. Um, you know, don't buy these huge, luxurious stands. And so I'm carrying out this 26-pound hang-on that's just awful and rickety and clanking together. and You know, it's just just terrible stuff. But I ended up finding this swampy area that it didn't seem like anybody else wanted to be in. And... I ended up taking, uh, my first deer was a little seven point buck, um, shot him at like seven yards directly underneath this giant oak that I thought would be a good idea to sit in. Um, took another doe later that year. And then I took another doe, um, a few weeks after that. So I actually had a really successful first season, but I sat in the tree a lot. I mean, it was a lot of hours and it was a lot of moving and not seeing anything, until you maybe see that one deer, and then you have that one opportunity.
0: <laughs> so, so you jumped in head first into it. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Is that something that you do? Is that a little bit about your personality? I mean, when you say you're going to do something, you you go you go all the way, or you don't do it at all.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate.
0: Okay. All right. So a, a, after, was there any frustrations with that first year? Uh, because a kid. May not necessarily know what frustration is when they start to hunt, right they don't understand right. that you know if they see ten guys walk by that's a bad thing you know, a kid a kid might not get that um or you right. know a kid may have uh someone like a dad or an uncle to show them the ropes. I mean what were some of the frustrations of that first season what were some of the questions that you had uh, and who answered those questions and maybe as far as resources what kind of resources did you use to make yourself I I don't know if it was even a thought at the time but maybe resources that were like hey I want to I want to know more about deer and how to hunt them what were some of those resources
1: um I guess frustrations was just kind of gear um it seemed like i had found a decent spot on state land um you know i heard a lot of horror stories from people but i was actually doing okay the spot that i found i wasn't seeing too many people none of my stands got stolen but the gear getting it in and out um just so heavy so bulky i bought the worst clothing so frustrations and just being out there and just shivering I mean, being out there for a half hour and I'm cold already, I'm bundled up. I got like 14 different layers of cotton on because I had no <laughs> idea I shouldn't be wearing cotton.
0: Been there. So
1: <laughs> so big frustrations there. Um, and I learned a lot of that just going back to my buddy. He didn't really, you know, coach me too much where he's telling me everything to do. But when I would come back with a question, he would he would help. And honestly, he directed me to Archery Talk, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners on here are on it or on it all the time. But Archery Talk is just... A, just an incredible amount of threads on yeah. clothing to wear or, you know, gear to buy. I mean, how to hunt pressured state land, how to get away from people just so much on this. So i would just scour for hours and hours just reading and reading about people's stories and how they took down a buck or how they chased one or et cetera.
0: How did that, uh, uh, turn out for you then? I mean, were you able to have some takeaways from some of that information that you read and put what your buddy said into an actual application?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, where I was and still, I mean, a lot of times in Michigan, it's just, instead of patterning the deer, you're almost patterning the hunters. You got to figure out where they're going and where you shouldn't end up where they are um, or find in an area where, you know, you know they're taking this trail and every single morning they're going to bump those deer from the east side, and you're going to be sitting over on the west with the wind in your favor, and they're going to bump them right towards you. Yeah. Um, but sometimes that takes, you know, an hour walk in through some nasty, thick, mucky stuff to get to the spot. And then once you're there, you got to determine whether that deer, whatever runs by, is going to be worth taking and then getting it out of there.
0: Right. So a kid, you know, someone who's 10, 11, 12, whatever, they they their mind probably and i'm i'm just speaking from experience their mind can't function at a high level like i would say like an adult like The learning curve, if I never hunted before, but you put a a 25-year-old or however old you were when you started hunting, 20-year-old compared to a 14-year-old, you're able to process information a little bit faster, you're able to make moves, you're able to... uh, i don't know just just read sign and terrain and wind and all that stuff and and read about it and understand it a little bit better than someone younger was, so do you think that a the learning curve for someone like yourself was a, a little bit shorter as opposed to maybe someone who started earlier in their life?
1: yeah, I think so, um especially like you said when they're younger and who's who's coaching them yeah who's teaching them to do these things you know are they walking? 50 yards into a ground blind and that's the extent of it. Or they walk in a half mile down some two track trails and that person's maybe showing, I'm like, Hey, do you see this deer run here? And this one's coming over here and then you have the Creek. And, um, but the learning curve definitely is, is shorter for someone, I think getting into it later and someone who's taking it a little more serious. Right. I mean, it really depends. Some guys just walk in the woods and they'll walk around with their shotgun and their orange hat on for three days, not see a deer. And they're like, okay, well I hunted yeah um some guys they'll do that for three days and then they'll do it for another week until they make it happen right so yeah, I think it all it all varies on the situation and uh, if you're self-taught
0: or if someone's teaching you and what type of land you're on really too right so your first year you killed three deer, and uh I mean that sounds like a a pretty successful season for me, so did you hunt? any more like gun seasons after that? Or I mean, when, when did you make that jump in and say, you know what? Now I want to try bow hunting. Um,
1: that was the first year that was the th- three deer were with a bow. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. I've only, ca- I've only taken, um, one, maybe two deer with a shotgun, one with a loader. Okay. I'm pretty much strictly bow. Um, I just, it's just a little more intense, I think. And it's more of a challenge.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Cause earlier you said, you know, you, your buddy said, Hey, let's get a gun and let's get a, a ground blind. Uh, so did you hunt, I mean, did you hunt a season with no kills before that? Or did you get like when you got your very, or when you started your very first hunting season, you, you got a gun and you got a bow, but all your kills were with bows.
1: So the first season was with the shotgun and a ground blind, and I hunted like two days. Gotcha. And I was gotcha. like, I'm over this. I need to be way more prepared next year. I need to be out before all these people, and I'm not hunting gun season. Gotcha. So, Okay, got it. fast forward a year, that's when I went out with the bow and, you know, started hanging stands and just getting way more involved and way more into it right. um, and avoiding all those people who are out on the gun opener and avoiding that whole week in general and right. um, just staying away.
0: Okay. So you're hunting north of Detroit uh you mentioned before we started recording that this area is a is basically the first stop for everybody who lives in Detroit when they leave the city to go hunting they their first stop and a lot of people are, are stop on this public chunk right
1: right I show up uh sometimes I do some
0: duck hunting around here and you'll just you know, start talking
1: to the guys. You talk a little more than you do if you're just running into a guy whitetail hunting, but they're all coming from Detroit. Mm-hmm. So many guys bringing their boats up. Um, even just south of us, there's some really populated cities, and there's not much hunting land. Plenty of parks, plenty of land, but you can't hunt it. Um, so they all drive up towards us, and where I am, I mean, I'm surrounded by five, six, seven uh, giant pieces of land that, you know, you've got miles, mile, just acreage and acreage and acreage and um just a lot of people in this area hunt and we get a lot of people from the south you know coming straight up or coming right from detroit um coming to this area particularly
0: okay so kind of going back to your first uh bow season you know gun season it's later in the it was later in the season um you know you ran into a ton of people what was your I know you've already mentioned that you were successful, but from a pressure standpoint or, um, kind of approach with it being your first bow season, what were your expectations? What was your thought? How did you approach the season?
1: Um, you know, I don't really remember my expectations. I just knew it was going to be tough. Um, I had seen, you know, my roommate, he, he wasn't killing a bunch of deer. You know, he knew it was tough too. he, at that point he was after very particular deer. Mm-hmm. He was being very selective, but you know, he told me I'm going to have to work for it. I'm not just going to walk out there and they're just going to be buzzing around me and crossing all over and et cetera. So I went out and like I said, I found a spot that I thought was pretty good. There was minimal traffic from the trails, you know, I'd go out on like a rainy day and you wouldn't see too many. Uh, foot tracks the next week or so but I just went deep I walked forever and that was good and it was bad because a lot of times when you're getting up early and you got to walk all the way in you know you're walking for 45 minutes an hour and you're like oh my gosh (laughs) I am way back here I'm already sweating I'm gonna be freezing Um, but it allowed me to get away from some of these other people that you could see their stands from the road you could see them from the parking lot you know you could just it was
0: crazy. Yeah. So first season was a, a success. Um, and going into your second, third season, I mean, it sounds to me like you, you really took pride in educating yourself uh, about the entire process. What was, even though you harvested three deer on your first year, did you have any takeaways or um, things that you said you were going to do different the following year?
1: Yeah. Um, I wanted to get a little more selective. Of course, I just wanted to shoot monster deer, uh, right. monster bucks, but right. that's not really that common in Michigan. So even my second serious year of hunting, um, I took a very standard, uh, Michigan deer, you know, just like a year and a half old, seven point, um, something real small, but extremely happy with it. But what I wanted to go into that season was just be more prepared. Uh, know what to expect, work the terrain a little more and work the conditions. So instead of just saying, Hey, I'm, you know, I got Friday off. I'm going to go hunt, take Friday off and go hunt the right stand. Yeah. You know, don't just climb into a stand and, you know, cause the first year you're learning your wind. Uh, two of the deer I shot uh, my first year were actually downwind of me. I was blowing my wind right to them. So, I just got lucky there. Yeah. Um, and I realized if I'm going to shoot the deer that I want to shoot, that I watch other people shoot, it's not going to be like that. You're going to have to work for it, and you're really going to have to understand what they're doing. And even in, you know, early season, when you're getting in October, I didn't understand feed. I just said uh, deer live in the woods, right? Yeah, they just, you know, eat whatever. No, it's very particular. You know, they're after their white acorns, and they're going to the red acorns or or they're moving into ag land if there's anywhere near and they need water. But you don't quite think that when you're just getting into it. Um, I think when you're starting to pattern them and you want to see more deer, instead of maybe just seeing one or two on a couple different hunts, you want to see seven, eight deer, or you want to see some crazy rutting action or something, you need to be where the deer are going to be. So you start to learn that a little more. You learn their patterns and kind of all that group together and, um, start seeing more deer.
0: Okay. So the second year, did you see more deer? Did you have more encounters? Did you eventually, or did you end up passing deer at all? The second year I ended up shooting a buck on opening day. Okay. So,
1: um, I think I got a little lucky there. I also picked a very particular spot. They had actually moved, um, an hour South. So I was back in this area where, uh, we're talking now commerce. Um, uh, and I was hunting there and they had just done a ton of trimming, on some power lines and a gas line that ran through this public land. So I took that to my advantage to be able to get really deep, really far in. So it was an easy walk. You're just walking for a long time. And I got back to a little pinch point between, um, this private land, this state land and where a river came in. So it kind of made a little triangle. I remember getting right back in there, and they were coming out of the Phragmites. I'm sitting in this tamarack tree, and they were just moving all around me. And I look over and I see, you know, a nice white shiny rack. So, let her rip. Right. And that was the first. That was the first day of uh, season for me that year.
0: So. What made you want to go back to that spot? Was it scouting during the summertime? Was it uh, reading sign? I mean, what made you pick out that particular spot?
1: Honestly, just looking to see how far I could get away from the parking. Okay. Um,
0: Looking at, you
1: know, where people can leave their cars, where they can walk in, and then picking a spot, you know, being still pretty new to the woods in deer hunting, picking a spot that I could get back out without getting lost. Okay. Um, at that time I didn't, you know, have a smartphone as I do now where you can just pull up some GPS and yeah, you know, I'll get out. But when you're by yourself and you're out there and you're like, All right, I gotta be able to get in, get out quietly, you know, not get hung up anywhere, be fumbling around, blowing scent all over once it gets dark. So I kinda picked the farthest spot I could get to, the spot that I think I could get in and out safely and the spot that I didn't think anybody else would be at. Okay.
0: Okay. And, uh, you just got lucky again. It sounds like, I mean, you didn't, I mean, did you know that there was going to be deer in this area or did you just, your goal was to get I as had, far away back as humanly possible and set up?
1: Yeah, I knew I had scouted it prior, so I knew there were some deer back there just by, okay. you know, walking around. You could see the deer tracks and whatnot. I actually hung a camera, um, had a really nice deer in there. So that got me really excited to just want to be back there, especially opening day. Um, and of course, never saw that deer, uh, you know, who knows where that deer went. Um, but yeah, that made me want to sit there as opposed to anywhere else, because some of the other spots I've found, it was really hard to find deer sign. Um, they were kind of in the hardwoods and it was just, it was harder to pick up the tracks where I was, you know, on the edge of the swamp, you could really see where they were walking. Um, so just reassured that there were deer there
0: at some point, whether it was night or day. Gotcha. Uh, So then how did the rest of that second season play out for you?
1: Uh, Pretty good. Um, Ended up taking another doe um, and that was a wrap for that season.
0: Nice. Nice. So this was, was this a completely different piece of public property? It was. Okay.
1: Um, The property I ended up um, learning on was about an hour from where I am now. It was when I was still at uh, Michigan state. So I was up there and there's some, there's some cool ground up there, um, for anybody who's up there. There's some awesome state land you can learn on, or, you know, spend some time on while you're up there.
0: Gotcha. And that was, uh, at, when you were living in Lansing. Yes. Okay. So, I know there's there's obviously different parts of Michigan, but the describe the terrain, you know the the you know. I guess the layout of this public ground that you cut your teeth on as far as learning how to bow hunt. Um, extremely swampy.
1: There's not many hardwood ridges. You maybe have a couple. And typically if you know, everybody tells you like, go check out the hardwoods, look for the acorns. Yeah. No, Michigan, typically someone's already there. So you can go check them out, but you're not going to be the first one there. So, just tons and tons of swamps. Um, no ag land around at all. Just lots of little rivers, little pockets of water that are mostly like mud pits. You know, they look like water, but it's just all swamp, you know, eight inches beneath the surface is just mucky and nasty and great duck hunting. Um, But that's kind of how it was. Lots of little streams, little rivers running through this property, swampy, nasty, thick, um, with your few hardwood areas um, in the middle and the edges and kind of running all throughout. Right. But some tough land, you know, it's not land you look at and you're like, Oh man, I would love to own that piece of property or anything like that. It's just, it's just dark, dingy, you know, everything looks dead. You know, there's so many down trees. It's just thick.
0: Yeah. it's Yeah. So do the deer love that? I mean, do they really love that kind of habitat or is it just sparse?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I don't think they love it. I think that's just, they, they can find safe spots there. Um, once I've moved to some different ground and started learning better ground to look for, you can definitely tell that, you know, some deer definitely prefer different areas and you can locate deer for the, you know, for those areas. So talking about the hardwood ridges and stuff like that, and they're using the swamps as bedding or, you know, they're getting into the fragmites or cattails or anything like that to cut from one ridge to the other. And, Um, but the area I was hunting and learned on is definitely not prime deer hunting land or any sort of deer habitat. There's just hardly any food. I mean, like I said, the the ridges are pretty scarce. So what about they're eating a lot of bark and anything else they can get.
0: Gotcha. So what, how's that compare to where you live now on the far East side?
1: Um, it's pretty similar. I'd say this is not as thick over here. Um, more woodsy. I mean, there's still a ton of swamps around here. I mean, you could go anywhere. I mean, we call it like the land of the lakes where I am. I mean, there's, there's lakes everywhere. I mean, you can't drive a mile without hitting another lake. So, but there's also a lot of really grown up forests. So, uh, one particular area I hunt, it's, I mean, it's, it's like all oaks and they're tall and tall, tall. So, it's much different than learning in a swamp um, or coming from the swamp where I learned. To where i'm hunting now um and then i've switched over to a little bit of ag land hunting too um this is actually my first year hunting next to some serious agricultural land it was planted with corn um, previous years i've just hunted next to some land that was you know cattle pasture nothing really is living on it but it's planted every year just to keep the soil in place and just some random grasses or timothy grass or clover anything like that but um This year I actually got into some, some agricultural land and it was, it's totally changes the game. Um, when you're getting in there ways to get out of there and it's pretty awesome being able to see, you know, coming from some thick nasty swamp stuff to come into some little easier terrain to navigate and get in and out and see things.
0: Um, it's pretty cool. So with, with it being easier, does that also bring more pressure?
1: It does. Um, Of course, everybody thinks, you know, agricultural land. I'm going to go set up there next to the cornfield. This beautiful buck's going to walk in and I'm going to shoot a monster, right? Well, that's not how it happens. You know, when I walked in and I scouted this piece of property, um, I think I passed four ladder stands and, you know, a couple of hang-ons that were hanging up in the tree from the year prior. So initially I was like, oof, this is going to be tough. Um, there's a lot of pressure already here and these stands are hung before they're even allowed to hang them on this particular piece of property. So I'm wondering if, you know, there's already guys that hung them or they were left here from last year, or if I'm going to be, you know, in a little battle royale with some people because they think it's their public piece of ground and they're marking their territory. Um, but ended up, uh, being a pretty quiet piece of property, to be honest with you, um, There was a few people hunting it and I would kind of see them, but that was it. I think I found a a nice little, nice little egg.
0: Nice. And that's awesome. Did, um, okay. So, so this is, now we're talking about the piece of property that you hunt, like you hunted this year, right? Right. Okay, cool. Cool. So I'm always interested, um, you know, for the guys who hunt public land I mean, not necessarily even public, just anytime you go to a new piece and you learn it, um, you know, how, so how many years, I'm going to back up a bit. How many years now has it been since you started bow hunting till when you came back to your hometown and started hunting close to your hometown?
1: Uh, I've been hunting six years total. Okay. Six years with a bow.
0: So, Okay. okay. Six, six years total with a bow um and how was the pressure compared or well you already kind of answered that i mean it was you ran into some tree stands but you didn't run into the people that you thought you were going to right right okay so so then when the season actually hit uh did you on these first couple years that you were hunting this new piece of property How long did it take you to really start to learn it, uh, learn what the other hunters were doing, learn what the deer were doing in, in, in relationship to those hunters?
1: Uh, I think I'm still learning that honestly. Okay. Um, it's, it's easier to pattern the people of course. Um, but it's hard to figure out what the deer are doing on these pieces of property because there's so much pressure. There's always that question of, well, they're over here right now, but Why? did someone bump them over because there's dirty cars that I passed on the way in, you know, you can't really figure it out. Um, I was lucky to hunt some private ground for two years and that's where I really learned what deer do. Um, I was the only one hunting 400 acres. Oh, wow! So in Michigan, that's extremely rare to come across. Um, as I'm sure you've known talking to a bunch of Michigan guys, but, um, that's when I really learned what deer do. And I think that's what made it a little easier for me or, or just, you know, I had a little more knowledge going back to state land this year on figuring out where I should be, when I should be there, how to get in, how to get out. Um, because when you're only hunting that state land, that's so heavily pressured, there's just so many variables. You know, there's no food, maybe there's water in them a hundred spots, you know, you got 10 guys that you just passed on the way in. You didn't see the other side of the road because you only came down one side. So you don't know if there's 10 guys, there's 20 guys. Um, You know, you got all these mineral licks out. You've got a bait pile over there. You got this guy blowing all sorts of scent out of his ground blind. So there's just so many variables that it's really hard to learn um, unless you're just out there year after year and day after day. Um, I think I, I learned the most when I finally got hooked up with some private land.
0: Okay. Then you lost that private land, right? I did. And that was a bummer. What happened there? Did they just end up selling it? No, he still has it. Um,
1: there was a little bit of some turmoil going on in the family. Um, and, basically just got the cold shoulder and you know it just didn't feel right anymore and um it kind of just lost it huh. but he still has it he is starting to get one of his sons into hunting a little bit um it's an interesting situation he was you know not into hunting at all and then he got into um shooting some high powered rifles and he'd go into the bedding areas and just start shooting and now he's into shooting deer with high-powered rifles. So um, I don't know if it's ever going to come back or if it's off the books for good, but it's an incredible piece of property, that's for sure.
0: Right. So on those two years, where, I mean, two years hunting uh, 400 acres of private ground, you said, you know, it's a completely different world. Were you successful those two years? Oh,
1: extremely. Um, I Yeah, it was honestly, I'd say it was hard not to be successful. Um, there were a ton of deer, they were everywhere. Um, some of my sits, um, of course you could still screw them up. You know, yeah. you could screw up the walk in and blow the whole field out. Don't get me wrong. But if you're doing what you're supposed to do and you're working hard for it, I was seeing anywhere from, you know, 10 to 40 deer a night. Um, just crazy, just tons of
0: does tons of bucks. Um, some of my trail cameras I would check and, it would just blow me away. All right. So you were seeing a ton of deer on this public piece. Is that because no one ever, you know, over the past couple of years, no one has been hunting it or because all the ground around it was really pressured and that just put them all onto this piece.
1: I think that, um, no one had really been hunting it. Um, and everybody in the area, um, is into letting them grow. Um, a lot of the, uh, the neighbors around are very uh, wealthy and they're looking for very particular deer. They all have very large plots of land. So I think that really helped to let the deer grow. They had a great habitat to live in and no one's going out there and, you know, just blasting away at them or taking them too many small bucks or et cetera. Right. So that really just led for this property to just be amazing. Also, being the only one on 400 acres, if you don't go into the bedding area, no one else is going in there. So, you know, it's, it's, you could really, you know, work from the outside in. Um, the first year I went out there, I had no idea what to do. You know, I was like, where do I go? This place is massive. Yeah. You know, there's a the field over here, field over there, a little cut shortcut here with a two track. And um, I ended up picking a pretty good spot. Um, it allowed me to kind of glass over a couple different fields. And um, I saw that one particular buck was just working in the backfield and ended up moving down on him. And I took him the next day. Um, he was pretty predictable, showed up at the same time, um, same spot, few evenings in a row. And then uh, later that year, that's when I took my first buck with a gun. Um, I went out for the opener there and. You know, I'm sitting there, sitting there, not seeing anything. I look back and there's a nice eight point standing right there in the middle of the field. So from there, I got very picky. Um, I would take a lot of crap from my buddies because I was starting to get really picky. I was passing on a lot of deer that a lot of people in Michigan would just love to see, you know, I'm passing these eight, nine points, um, letting them grow cause they're two and a half or so. I wanted to shoot a three and a half. I wanted to shoot a four and a half. Um, so I was able to do some pretty awesome stuff. I mean, one year I actually set up a decoy, which is pretty rare in Michigan. Usually the deer just, you know, run the opposite direction or <laughs> you're going to get some other guy shooting your decoy. Right. But I ended up decoying in two deer at the same time, two bucks, um, and took one of them with my bow. And that was just, that was just so cool. It was, you know, you would seen it on YouTube, you've seen it on some hunting videos, et cetera, and you just figured I'd give it a shot. um so that was pretty awesome and that's really when the the chase started i could zone in on one particular deer and chase him all season um i was actually unsuccessful for one of them chased him you know for two years never got him but um he's probably still out there running around somewhere nice mature deer
0: right and that was on that piece of private right yes yeah so the Second year, I take it you learned a little bit about this piece of property, um, and then did were you successful that second year as well? Yes. Okay. Yep. All right. So you found, you found what anybody in Michigan would consider heaven, right? 400 acres. Correct. No pressure. Amazing. You're the only person. Awesome for you. Then you lost it, right? For whatever reason, you lost yep. it. Yep. Then, because you still love to hunt, you're forced to go back to private ground, or excuse me, public ground now. What, That's right? What tactics or strategy or things that you learn from public ground did you take back or from private ground, did you take back over to your public ground?:
1: um, A lot. Um, I really analyzed, you know, where I needed to be on just terrain, um, where they're going to want to bed, where they're going to want to feed, how they're going to get there, how I'm going to get in, how I'm going to get out, what other hunters might do, um, the easiest spots they might go to. So there was just, I mean, just an incredible amount of knowledge I gained from that private land, but it allowed me to take a really nice buck this year, I think. Now, of course luck's got a little bit to do with it, but you know, when I scouted this public piece of ground that I was walking in and seeing these ladder stands, you know, I was feeling a little discouraged, but I knew I needed to get back, get into the thick stuff, find the pinch point that I had found online and just keep pushing. I had one of my buddies with me and you know, we're walking through some pretty nasty stuff and we're getting hung up on briars and all sorts of stuff like every step. Finally get back to this one spot and he kinda looked at me like, dude, you're nuts. You know we're just we're dripping in sweat we don't even really know where we are I'm like this is it this is the tree you know so we we set this double set up um and basically this little piece of swamp on this edge of this cornfield in between two little bodies of water that made a little pinch point and i knew that if i came back here i needed to be very strategic because i couldn't just waltz in here and they wouldn't hear me um I needed to be in at the right time. I needed to be in the right conditions with the wind in my favor. Um, I knew I was probably going to be passing a lot of guys on the way in. I'm going to have to fight for this piece of property. So um, the day that I actually took the buck this year, it was just, I mean, everything was perfect. The wind was perfect. The pressure was perfect. The ground was a little wet and mushy. I was able to sneak right in there. The corn was still up, um, but it was just... It was a pretty awesome
0: hunt. So then you were successful even on the, you know, two years of private. It actually didn't make you soft, right? It's like, because I could see a lot of guys getting to hunt private ground in the scenario that you have and and just kind of get soft and get lazy. And yeah, they could be successful, but they didn't have to work near as hard. Right, but you still you took everything that you learned from that um, private and then you still jumped back on the the public and were successful as well this is a a question that I really like to ask guys like yourself who are for the most part continuously or you know consistently successful on public ground and that is what are you doing that you feel a lot of the other public land hunters in those high pressured areas aren't doing?
1: I think it, I think that it a lot of it comes down to um, just really analyzing what you're doing. Um, I found my spot or myself just, you know, going to a lot of these spots and just rushing. And I think when I rush in there, and I yeah, don't take my time. I don't consider all the factors. Um, you're not successful. He, these deer are extremely pressured. They're extremely smart. They know how to avoid hunters. Um, I think you really got to go focused. You can't just go out there and, and Sure, you, of course, you want to hope for the best, but you need to be prepared. You need to get up, get up early enough. You need to get in quiet. Um, a few guys I know, you know, it's all about just like hustle in there, get set up, and get quiet. No, nah, that's not my train of thought here. I think you need to get in extremely quiet because as soon as you bump that mature deer, he's gone. He's not coming back. So I think that has a lot to do with it. I don't think people give deer the credit that they really deserve on staying away from us. I mean, sure, you can go out and you might, you know, see a couple of yearlings or, you know, a couple of does and past, but to really see or shoot a mature buck, I think you really have to take every aspect seriously and um, really analyze what's going on and how you're gonna get in there undetected, yeah,
0: yeah, so kind of a gear question right now. you're doing a lot of running and gunning, right? Yes, all right, so walk us through your run and gun setup from you know from the moment you walk out of your truck to the moment that you're sitting down waiting for deer to come in your stand. Oh boy. It's exhausting. (laughs) Um, this year I actually used a hawk hang on, um, with some muddy sticks. Okay.
1: So I've spent a ton of hours just getting everything set up, everything wrapped, um, a lot of rope around the hawk stand to make sure if the C platform slams down, it's not making noise. You know, I got felt or I got tape on the buckles. Um, so I'm throwing that on my back. I kind of rigged it up in a strategic way where I can get those sticks to lay flat instead of uh, packing, you know, stacking on each other and it's hanging three feet off your back. So I throw my backpack on there, you know, it's got a camera arm in it. It's got my camera, everything like that. i um, strapping my either bibs or jacket or whatever, you know, depending on the weather, I'm strapping that to my back and I'm putting that on with uh, like a Moli, uh waist belt and some shoulder straps. So I'm packing that in and, You get there and you're, you're pretty hot. Usually I'm sweating. So I'm walking out in extremely thin, uh, wool layers trying to just stay cool. Um, and then start to climb. So sometimes I'll climb up in, uh, one, one swoop, or sometimes I'll hang a few sticks and come back down and kind of take my time. It really just depends on how much time I have before shooting light or, you know, for the evening, Um, but every, every time it's a little different depending on what tree you're getting into or where you're going. Um, sometimes I try to leave a little weight in the car, only take the essentials. If I know, you know, I can get back here and I'm going to need help regardless. I'm not getting a deer out by myself. So sometimes I'll leave, you know, a knife or something, an extra knife or whatever I might not need. I'll leave that back in the truck just to try to lighten that pack up. Um, this year, I think I'm going to switch over to, um, an XOP, And their sticks Um, the hawk was just a little too wide for me i bought too big a one so i'm gonna switch it up and try something else this year
0: cool cool so what's your uh what's your camo i mean you mentioned your base layers wool uh for the walk-in um what what brand are you of wool are you using and do you think it's uh it works pretty well yeah i do um i wear first light okay so
1: um, a while back I was researching, you know, what do I wear? What's the best, what's the lightest, what's the warmest? Um, and I found first light before they kind of blew up a little bit. Now they're, now they're huge. I mean, their advertising is just awesome. Their product is incredible, but I wear everything first light. Um, I wear their ASAC camo, which I think does a really good job of where I hunt. You know, there's a lot of briars, a lot of twigs. Uh, I think it really, really allows me to blend in. Um, It's certainly probably one of the ugliest camos I've ever seen to my eye, but that's really not what it's about, is it? Um, I'm just trying to stay hidden to the deer, so um, I like their products. I definitely do. They have quality, that's that's for sure. I mean, some of their stuff, I can sit out there in the cold for a long
0: time. Perfect. Perfect. Any other piece of uh, equipment as far as gears, you know, as far as your hunting gears are uh, concerned that is essential for you know a run and gun setup uh like yourself not necessarily like your bows or your arrows or or your camo but is there any other piece of equipment that you're just like if i forget it in my truck i'm going back to my truck
1: hmm you know that's a tough question i don't know i think it's all all of what i take out there's it's pretty essential um I don't know if I have one thing in particular that I can't be out there without. Um, I definitely use my bow sling a lot. Um, where I go, you know, you're always scraping up against some pretty nasty stuff. So I use that slight pin cover and a bow sling like every single time. Uh, the last thing you want to do is get out there and knock your pins right. and, you know, get that shot at one trophy buck and miss you knock it on a stick on the way in. So a lot of that, the bow sling just keeps all those, uh, the strings just from fraying like crazy. I used to burn through strings, you know, every year I'd be like waxing them multiple times a week. And I'd be like, what the heck is going on? (laughs) And uh, I found that it's just, you know, when you're walking through these briars, sometimes you're not really paying attention to the bow. You're always holding it up over your head, trying to keep it away from the briars and all the twigs. And uh, that bow sling really helps. Also just if you're, you know, sometimes I bike in, So I can take that that bow swing, and kind of wrap it around my neck and
0: let it rest on my forearms when I'm riding the bike. Um, So that's really helpful. It really is. So when you're riding a bike, obviously you have to have some kind of trail or path of least resistance. Because I've done a couple podcasts with guys who use boats or canoes or kayaks to get back to their, you know, they they use water as access. Did you notice, like when you started using a bike, other than making it quicker to get to your stand location, did you notice any difference in deer movement when you started using a bike to get access to some of these stands?
1: Um, not really. I'd say the first time I started using a bike, I was hunting a piece of property that had a lot of walking trails in it and you could get all the way to the back super quick. I was seeing a lot of deer. Um, The problem was I was passing a lot of guys on my way out because I could get out a lot faster than them. So I started seeing a lot more bikes out there. Um, It seemed like everybody was starting to bring a bike. So that allowed everybody to get exactly where they wanted to be in 15, 20 minutes instead of an hour walk. So I don't think there was enough time to really tell if You know, it was really helping deer movement, but it does allow you to get to some pretty remote spots that maybe the one guy doesn't want to put the climber or the, you know, the hang on stand on his back and then put the bow on his forearms and ride all the way back there for 20 minutes. Um, so you're still going to beat out some of the guys, but a lot of people do it.
0: Right. Absolutely. Well, man, I tell you what, I really appreciate you taking time uh, today to hop on the phone with us and, uh, chat about your experiences and hunting uh public ground in probably the one of the heaviest pressured states in the entire nation when it comes to uh when it comes to whitetail hunting so uh, kudos to you and uh thanks for your time man yeah no thanks for having me and that my friends is a wrap huge shout out to scott for coming on today and uh sharing a little bit about where he hunts how he hunts and uh, the time he spends in the woods so thank you scott huge shout out to each and every one of you as always i say this every podcast but i mean it without you this this doesn't happen so thank you very much huge shout out to all the partners of the podcast exodus wasp gearhead ozonix lone wolf bighorn outfitters and uh, ripcord arrow thank you 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 please go out and support those companies because they support this podcast and uh, it makes the time worthwhile so i really appreciate that plus they're all badass companies as well okay here's the deal go to itunes leave a review Or go leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast, right? Leave a review. Make it five stars and um, I won't do shit for you. But you can give me five stars anyway. Anyway, I'm not a beggar, alright? Leave a review. Tell me what you think of the podcast. Go to... Facebook and Instagram and like the Nine Finger Chronicles pages and follow those pages also Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network keep an eye out for the new western big game hunting feed that's going to be coming very soon I mean it's already up so if you go to iTunes and you type in you search Sportsman's Nation big game western hunting it will pop up so be sure to check that out. Man, a lot of cool things coming down the pipe there. Other than that, man, uh, bah, 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 bah. Instagram, Facebook, Sportsman's Nation, conservation, right? It's the time of year where we're done hunting. Let's put the gear to the side a little bit. Let's let's focus a little bit on giving back, right? What can you do to make hunting better for the next generation right i've been doing a lot of thinking about that this and i'm going to try to do my part to you know to make the next generation to make it better than the way that i left it or or better than the way that i found it so um, a lot of thinking and I, i know i've been leading you guys on with this but i'm gonna do something big and i want all of your support And I'll let you know when that's going to happen. Until then, if you're going to be in a tree, please, for the sake of your loved ones and even yourself, wear your damn safety harness. Happy hump day.